Welcome to I'm In, the Institute of Hospitality's official podcast sponsored by Catero.com and the Savoy Educational Trust and hosted by me, Phil Street, FIH. Today we're talking about legacy and joining me to pick this topic apart we have Eloise Hansen, AIH, Sarah Powell, MIH and Christopher Hogan, FIH. As always, a huge thank you to all three of them for giving up their time and opinion. So to find out how important past, present and future legacy is, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the next episode of I'm In, the Institute of Hospitality's official podcast hosted by me, Phil Street, FIH, and sponsored by thecaterer.com and the Savoy Educational Trust. Usual rules apply, as I'm once again joined by three exceptional humans from within the IOH membership, who are all very kindly giving up their time to chat to me today. So, first up, from within the fellowship, we have Chris Hogan, who is the Chief Executive and Secretary of the rather wonderful Phyllis Court in Henley-on-Thames. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Phil. I'm delighted to be here with Sarah and Eloise. Fantastic. Oh, you've just spoiled the surprise of who's coming next, but uh, <laughs> there, is, there is no surprise. Um, how are you anyway? How's things out in Henley? Well, it's, uh, it's very good. And in fact, I'm looking out of the window of my office over the 20 acres here, the sun is shining, the sky is blue. There's a lot of fanatical croquet players on the lawn. Um, and that's, <laughs> a, that's, a, that's a term I never thought I'd hear in a conversation ever. Ah, you need to come here and watch. Um, yeah. It does get very fanatical occasionally. But all, all of that beautiful picture I painted um, does, of course, mask the fact that uh, we're all facing challenges at the moment. But um, yeah, not a problem at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Well, at the end of the day, we, we can only do the best we can with what we've got, can't we? So um, yeah. it's just just about facing the challenges together as a united force. But in any case, that's probably a podcast discussion for another time. So just tell us a little bit about Phyllis Court. So Phyllis Court, it's a, a private members club right in Henley-on-Thames on the river. 20 acres. Um, it's a classic old clubhouse, which I, I we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, but within the 20 acres, we've got a, uh, a beautiful set of tennis courts and croquet lawns, moorings for the members to park their rather fancy boats, uh, and a great spa and fitness center. Um, so the members have got quite a lot here. We've got three and a half thousand members. Most of them are relatively local, and around about 75% of them are retired. So uh, we have a lot of regular visitors and a lot of long screwdrivers. That's members who like to be involved and, and, and really sort of come and give me some very heartfelt advice. So it's a very friendly <laughs> and emotionally bound environment, but generally everyone has a big smile on their face. Excellent. Yes. Well, the, um, I, I've actually, I, I, I came to Henley on Thames and, and saw Phyllis Court firsthand about 15 years ago. I can imagine nothing's changed since then. No, no, this is, this is a private <laughs> members club. Nothing is allowed to change. The club, <laughs> the club was formed nearly 120 years ago, and um, we're only just getting going. I, I've been running clubs for a while, and um, some of them are a couple of hundred years old, and not a lot has changed. Um, but that's the joy for a lot of the members of being a member of a club. Nothing changes. Right. Yes. Well, I'm sure we might get into that at some point in the fullness of this discussion. But um, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Very much looking forward to, to hearing your thoughts as we 
crack on. Next up, from within the MIH ranks, we have Sarah Powell, who is the HR director at, here we go, I'm going to try this to get it right this time, Sarah, Le Manoir au Quatre Saisons. Well done, you did it well. Boom. <laughs> there we are. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. We really must stop meeting like this. All we seem to do is meet through podcasts and discussions. That is true. That is very true. <laughs> So are, are you in the property today? Yeah, I'm on site today. The sun is shining. It's been a really nice October. So we've got some filming going on at the minute um, for some marketing. But yeah, it's, it's a lovely day to be on site. Fantastic. And just tell the world a little bit about you and uh, and Le Manoir if, for, for the three people who haven't heard of it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so as you said, I'm the, the HR director here at Le Manoir. I've been here for just over three years now. Um, and before that, I was uh, in, in the corporate world of hospitality and, and with Sir House. Um, so lots of experience in the hospitality world. And this is the, the first time in a, a really kind of country old property. We're very small in, in the grand scheme of things. We have the, just 32 rooms, but we have a very, very large team uh, of nearly 250 people. So it's a, wow. it's, a, it's a busy place, but it's a lovely place to be every day. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll also get into um, your role and how that can affect what we're talking about today as we get on. But uh, thank you for joining us as well. And finally, from our AIH members, we have the wonderful and quite famous Eloise Hansen, editor at Boutique Hotelier News. Eloise, welcome. Well, that was kind, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> How's things? Yeah, very good. Thank you. It's um, I have to say it's it's strange as a journalist to be this side of a podcast rather than the one yeah. hosting so you have the pleasure of being my first oh there they are and now I feel extra pressure <laughs> like uh, I'd actually forgotten about the fact that you do this for a living <laughs> so no pressure on me to uh, to come up with the goods <laughs> well lucky for you I can also steer a pretty good conversation very good excellent I'll just uh, I'll hand it over to you at some point <laughs> if it's not going well <laughs> Um, so just just tell us a little bit about Boutique Hotelier News. Of course. So Boutique Hotel News, we're, a, we're an online multimedia trade publication covering the global boutique, lifestyle and luxury hotel sector. So effectively, we cover news, comment and opinion across news stories, features, podcasts and webinars. And, and the website is published by International Hospitality Media, which is also an events organiser. Fantastic. Well, you are also very, very welcome. And um, yeah, I'm going to come back to you, Chris. Why did you say I'm into the IOH? How long have you actually been a member? Um, for three and a half years now. Right. Yeah, I've been in uh, hospitality for 12 years now. My full career was as a uh, military person and a diplomat. But How interesting to me, oh, we'll need to get you back on for another talk that we've got lined up. So, uh, but anyway, okay. Um, but to me, it was a no brainer. Um, when I started meeting people who were already part of the Institute of Hospitality, I found principally that I learned a huge amount from them. I enjoyed their company, and everyone seemed to be so, so willing to share best practice. And I found it extremely useful. As time went on, I thought that I could offer them good advice as well. And every time we met, it was the most productive uh, and social gathering. And so for me, when I got the call, uh, I said, absolutely delighted. And um, I've never looked back. 
Yeah, and nice to to kind of hear as well that we're we're bringing people in from other sectors as well. It's something that I've been talking about for well for a very very long time now, and it's great to see that you bring your own skills, but also the fact that from an IOH's perspective that you're you're kind of getting to see the inside track of many other ways and means of doing things. Absolutely, and I was focused very much within private members' clubs for a while. But the IOH has shown me um, the broadest possible spectrum of hospitality activity. And sharing that across the board has been so valuable both ways. Uh, I've certainly been able to develop this place based on what I've learned from my fellow IOH members. Well, that's great. Yeah, well, and the same question to you, Sarah. Why did you say I'm into the IOH? I think for me, I've... As, as I said in my, my introduction, I've, I've always worked in hospitality. I, d- I don't really know anything else. Uh, and I, I can't imagine knowing anything else moving forward. And it wasn't something, being in HR for a long time, it was, I, I focused on my, my HR side. And so I was part of the CIPD and, and lots of different places. And it, it, it was during lockdown, actually, I was um, speaking to, to a, few, a few colleagues and, and they were speaking more about the Institute of Hospitality. My previous GM here at Le Manoir was a, was a member as well. Um, and so it just got me thinking. So I, I, I joined because I was out of curiosity initially. And since then, I've, I've only been a member for probably uh, 18 months. And I think just the, the people that I've met, the, the events that I've been to, the the events that I've joined as well, yeah. from walks to dinners to all sorts of different and uh, weird and wonderful events. And I think for me, it's just been meeting the people. And as, as you just previously said, the actual spectrum of people that you meet, it's not just in you know hotels, you think it's, it is quite a small world hotels, there's always somebody who knows somebody. Yeah. And you kind of branch out into, like you said, that the private members, the the um, the contract catering. There's there's so many facets of, of hospitality that it's just opened a lot of doors and just just meeting new people and especially over the past eighteen months, just to understand people's challenges and to realise you're not alone in the challenges that you're facing. Um, yeah. So so that that was the the main reason. Yeah, I mean that the uh, we can all learn so much from each other, can't we? That's the the, the thing, and the the, the industry is so vast. With so many elements to it that yeah that so it's one of the the reasons I love the the IOH is is for that information sharing. Uh, you somebody else always knows more than you do about what you're trying to find out. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's the the, the people that you meet that it's only a quick email or a LinkedIn message away because you've you've met some good people at, at different events. And everybody that I've met has always been just so happy to help. Uh, yeah. As I said, I think we can sometimes get so caught up in our own world. I mean, I, I spent four years with Sir House, so definitely within the private members world, the same as Chris, and you you kind of just live in that little world. But when you start to speak to others and, and open up a little bit more, and I just love how everyone does help in any way they can, whether it's their time, whether it's to uh, donate something to your event or to ask you to join something. I think it's just a, it's just a really nice, solid community that, that you instantly feel part of. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of donations, you and I are uh, doing that race to Qatar for Springboard. We are indeed. At the, at the moment. Yeah. I'll call it legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and Eloise, finally, uh, why did you say I'm, I'm into the Institute of Hospitality? Well, I, purely selfish reason, of course, but I mean, I was, I was relatively new in my career as a journalist when 
I started to learn more about the IOH and I had followed Robert Richardson, his journey as well to becoming CEO at the IOH. So that was my connection or I suppose link to to the organization. But as a journalist, I needed to and wanted to ensure that I was surrounded by the right people to have the right conversations, which would effectively inform my own professional development. I mean, let's face it, I probably wouldn't be sat here on this podcast speaking to and meeting new people had it not been for the IOH. I've, I've attended events that, that the organisation has put on and again, made some fantastic new contacts just from being there in person. And I also sit on the editorial forum for the IOH magazine. So these are all opportunities that have helped me and are helping me grow into my role. No, I like that. And and you were on the receiving end of one of my rants at one of the <laughs> uh, events earlier in the year, I think. <laughs> it certainly wasn't a rant. <laughs> I can assure you that it was a very, it was a boozy conversation, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. It's amazing how the passion comes out, isn't it, after oh. a couple of glasses or something? Oh, it gets uh, the best of us. I'm not going to say that's the only reason I said I'm into the Institute <laughs> of Hospitality, by the way. But um, but no, well, thank you very all, uh, very all, very much to one and all for, for that. So I think without further ado, it's it's time to crack on with today's topic, which is all about legacy. So the opening statement today is simply this. Historical buildings within a community add to the cultural values of the area, and every grandparent, parent, and child will have had a personal relationship with them. How do you maintain and grow, and I suppose equally evolve, that legacy? Which is quite a big question to open with. Um, So we'll maybe just break this down into smaller, more manageable bite-sized chunks. So I'm going to come to you, Chris, as the leader of a... Uh, a, a building with a hell of a legacy. First of all, just talk to us a little bit about the the legacy that Phyllis Court has. You mentioned at the the top of the show that um, you know it, it has many many years behind it. So how do you, as an operator, take that on when it's got all this history behind it? So it's um it's a good question because um, I think this building, this estate, is is a, is has got two stories to it because uh, a family purchased the building in 1906 and immediately uh, transformed it into a private members club. And I'll talk about that in a second. But prior to that, the the building, uh, which has been standing since 1642, uh, had a great history of um, belted aristocracy moving in and out of the place through various phases of, of history. But the Finlay family bought this house and developed it into a private members club. And it is a beautiful building. And it really is an iconic part of Henley-on-Thames. And if you know Henley-on-Thames, it's pretty beautiful anyway. But this place stands out. And it's very, very visible. Anyone um, motoring in their their launch uh, along the Thames will look up at the building. They'll look up at the Riverside Pavilion, which is um, a beautiful pavilion that was built for the royal family about 100 years ago to come and watch the regatta. And all of that has to be maintained because 
being a member of a of a private club like this, you're a member. You are a member of a brand of an identity, and principle amongst all of that is the building. So you're absolutely right. I have to hang on to that vision, to that that shop window, the veneer of the club, and that is damn expensive when you've got a large yeah. building like this, and that's yeah. a challenge at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, with everything else that's going up, then you, I imagine that the cost to maintain is also going up, uh, and uh, let alone everything else that you've got to kind of cover uh, in that regard. It, it is, and of course, there's a bit of bit of a double whammy because during the two years of COVID disruption, a lot of the the maintenance we had to do in house with anyone that, that that in our maintenance team that was fit enough to do it because none of the building contractors uh, wanted to work during that period. So in yeah. particular, this last year, we've been struggling to find the resources to make sure that this beautiful building stays standing and stays in a good enough situation, a good enough condition, particularly inside, for the members to enjoy it because they pay quite top dollar to be members here. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt at all. And Sarah, from your perspective, you're also at a building that's that's got some some history behind it, and we were talking about this a little bit before we turned the microphone on. But the in terms of everybody in the world has heard of Raymond Blanc, but what is the history of the building? Are you aware of it, and and kind of how did Raymond want to kind of take that on and evolve that? Well, I, th- I think in terms of the building, we we have records of the building dating back to twelve twenty five, so it's not the building that you see today, but 1225 right. is, the, is the documented first resident uh, in a part of the, the manor that was in the village of Great Milton, um, just in South Oxfordshire. And over the years, there was, we have potted history and little pieces that, that we've managed to, to unearth. Um, but the main story obviously came when Raymond saw the property. And how that came about is in the 1980s, Raymond had a restaurant in Oxfordshire, in Summertown, um, called Les Cat Saison. And he then wanted to expand, that he wanted to a place where his it wasn't just a restaurant anymore that people could come. It was a home away from home. They could spend more than just the time it takes to eat the meal. So he was looking for a, a property for, for quite some time. He knew in his mind what he wanted. He wanted a small property with a small garden. Um, and then one day he was sat at home and in the, the newspaper in front of him and Country Life just in front of him was an advert for um, Le Manoir or the, the building that is Le Manoir today um, that Lord and Lady Cromwell. So Lady Cromwell uh, was selling the property. And he came to visit the property. He was a little bit unsure because he thought it was too big for what he originally wanted to take on. But the minute he saw the property, he fell in love with it and knew this is where he wanted to be. So he he knocked on the door and and spoke to Lady Cromwell. And fortunately for Raymond, I think, Lady Cromwell, in the past few weeks, just before Raymond had knocked on her door to buy her property, had actually eaten in Raymond's restaurant and absolutely loved it. Right. The team loved the loved the the food, loved what Raymond was trying to do, and so quite happily agreed to to sell the the building to to Raymond. And then in it, it took a while; it took about eighteen months or two years to get the plan permission to change the use from obviously a, a residential property into a, a commercial property and into a hotel. And Raymond first opened the doors of Le Manoir in nineteen eighty four. Um, so we've been going since then. And since then, the property's had a lot of, of redevelopment and, and things added and things changed and bedrooms added. Um, but all in all, we've tried to keep the essence of that 
home away from home that country house feel um in the main in the main building that, that we have so so yeah it's it's a property with a, a huge amount of history and one that we're quite proud when when all the new starters start we always talk to them about how raymond came to uh, to find the building and and to turn it into what it is today yeah so in many ways he's he's almost created the legacy of the building from a hospitality perspective at least yes of course the building predates that monumentally but the, before that it was it was just a purely a residential property until he took it on yes it's only, have i got that right yeah it's only yeah. ever been the the manor house of the the village of great milton so so now it's uh it was to say raymond turned it in uh, 1984 in from the residential property it was to the the commercial hotel and, and property that it is today yeah great I, well I, i'm sure we'll come back to to that point actually because that's something that's uh, that i think is worth exploring because actually we're talking about legacy in terms of stewardship and, and custodians of of buildings and and things like that but actually here we have a situation whereby there was no hospitality legacy it's being created from scratch and um i think it's fair to say there's a hell of a legacy being created (laughs) there but um in any case eloise i'm conscious of the fact that obviously you're you're not an operator you kind of like me sit on the fringes of the um or is it the shadows the shadow sounds cooler doesn't it um of the uh, of the industry, kind of from the outside looking in, I know that you you hosted a, a a webinar on this subject for the IOH last or earlier this year, I think it was, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. What were your kind of main takeaways in that conversation, in the sense of when it comes to the custodianship of a building? Uh, because you were interviewing a couple of operators for that, weren't you? Mm-hmm. I. Well, I, first of all, I just want to jump off what Chris was mentioning earlier about the, the supply chain issues and, and rises in, in costs and development at the moment. At least one key takeaway from, from that session was that the reserve money that these owners slash operators would normally put aside for those important maintenance updates or or things that that need fixing have in most cases been spent just to keep said hotel building operational. So I know that it has been certainly very, very tough. I know that um, government stimulus has has certainly helped to some degree but i think that there's general consensus out there at the moment that more help does need need to come from from the government so we'll we'll see mm-hmm. how that pans out i know we're doing u-turns and 360 whatever yeah, it might be time we live in isn't i it? know yeah. <laughs> i know so um so yeah i just wanted to highlight that as a as a, I suppose, that general statement of the, the state of the market at the moment. Yeah, and I suppose that's the thing as well. You, you kind of highlighted there something that maybe a, a, if you're a, a, an operator of a, a new product, a brand new product, you don't necessarily have to write that element into your budget. So back back to you, Chris, from a, a an operator's perspective, how do you... I mean, how do you even get started with this sort of stuff? Because I, I suppose the very nature of these buildings are, is because of their age, you're always going to have the unforeseen things kind of hit your doorstep. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a, um, a voyage of discovery sometimes. Um, but... It's a wonderfully positive language way to put it. <laughs> yeah, um, but 
we have surveyors that come in on an annual basis to sort of have a look over the building and they give us our five-year plan. But that's all the stuff that they can forecast is going to break or needs replacing or, or updating. It really is a case of constantly inspecting, constantly checking and monitoring um, to see if things are operational. Um, I have to say that the members are very good, as you might imagine, at very quickly telling me that things are going wrong. Um, yeah. and, um, and you never hear when they're going right. Oh, absolutely. Deafening silence. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not it, it, it's not that difficult until an expensive piece of kit breaks or the roof needs fixing. But we're not grade two listed, surprisingly. The Riverside okay. Pavilion is listed, um, but we can modernize a lot of this building to make it future proof. That takes investment. And uh, as I said, at the moment, we're, we're a little bit stuck for that sort of uh, expenditure. But being a private members club, members are invested in the future. So they're very generous when we go to them and say, hey, this is a good project. Why don't we all chip in to help? Right. Yeah, I suppose it's a, it's, well, it's a crowdfunding model you have. Just... It is. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, the members, the member, it's, a, it's a member owned club, like the, the classic London clubs. So three and a half thousand people each have a part share in the property. And that gives them a sense of ownership, which I think encourages them to help. Yeah, and I, I suppose it keeps them at the table as well when you're setting the 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 legacy yeah. of the building yeah. uh, in terms of what what do we want this to stand for yeah. within the the place that yeah. we're at. And and I think it makes it a slightly easier strategic operation to address because for me the fundamental principle of of running a private members club is keeping member satisfaction. Whereas if I was running a, a, a big spa or golf club or, or something that was proprietorial, the bottom line, the, the profit margin would be my big focus. So it is a different way of running hospitality when you're in a member-owned environment. Yeah, I can only imagine. And and Sarah, you're obviously your role at Le Manoir is very, uh, very people-centric, uh, I would imagine. So in your experience... How important are the people in protecting any legacy that's being generated by the building? I think for me there, and obviously I would say this, but I, I think it's true, um, that people are people are the heart of a building. People are what makes it what it is um, and what it was always meant to be. Um, I use the example of when, um, and I know we, we've all moved on from from COVID times, but when the when the property was closed and there was a few days when when I came onto site and and I worked on site, we all commented that the building just felt like a building. It felt like bricks and mortar, and some wood, and setting a beautiful setting. Don't get me wrong, but it was only when the people came back that the building came to life. Um, and so I think for me, the people that you have are the people that not only carry on the legacy, but at whatever time they, they come to the property, they also create that legacy and they also help to shape that legacy moving forward. And as part of the, the Belmont Group, one of our one of our values and one of our behaviours, sorry, is to be a proud custodian. And for me, it's more than a proud custodian for the for the brand, for the property, for the for the history, for the, the heritage, is more than just an ambassador. I think an ambassador 
um, well, whilst it's great to be an ambassador, I think a custodian really gives that sense of ownership. So we all give ownership to every single one of our team to be proud to, to work here and to, and to create that legacy. So for me, people people are the key to unlock what that legacy looks like. Um, because as I say, without them, it, it does just become four walls and a, and a little roof. Yeah, and I suppose that can change with generations as well in terms of what the, yes, you can set I really like that uh, value, by the way, being a proud custodian. I mean, I think that that speaks volumes to whatever property Belmont go into, I guess, is that we're, it, it's like the old adage of, you know, if you're lucky enough to ever play for the country that you represent in sport, in a team game, you're just holding on to the shirt for a while. You're a custodian of that. And uh, yeah. I think it was the All Blacks that talked about, you want to leave the shirt in a better place than you find it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you know, it, but it's it's true though, isn't it? Like if you just woke up with that mentality every day, then actually whatever legacy has come before, you're going to be protecting it automatically because you're already focused on making sure that you're leaving it in a better place than you found it. Yeah, and I think I think you can see that here at, here at Le Manoir. Everybody takes some form of responsibility for for the property. We we all know it's 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 an old it's an old property, um, but everybody looks after it in the in the best way that they can. Um, and they all come together. And so just bringing everybody together and having that sense of pride in whatever area they feel proud of, whether it's their particular department, whether it's the, the story that, that they're involved in, what they've created that day. I think it just really gives um, a sense of togetherness and community here on, on property. And it's great when you have the, the wider community that the property is part of, but everyone comments when they come to the memoir, it does feel like a small family, a, a little community that all comes together for the same reason. Yeah. Absolutely. Eloise, from, from all of the people that you've interviewed over the years, which is uh, a fair few, I think <laughs> now, do you know how many you've in- interviewed? You know what? I should really tally it up, shouldn't I? I could be here <laughs> for some, some time, but I've only been with uh, Boutique Hotel News for three years. So I've, right. I've certainly learned a lot in that time. But prior to BHN, I was actually working in the hotel. So I have a very fascinating entry I suppose into the hospitality industry but back to the podcast let's go <laughs> yeah <laughs> um in terms of just on the, the overarching uh, concept that we opened up with around legacy and uh, how you maintain and grow that legacy have you had any trends or any experience from people that you've spoken with that kind of add value as to what to do to make sure you're being successful when when it comes to that I actually recently spoke to a hotel owner who, who bought a hotel in, in Henley, actually. And she's... God, other places are available, by oh, the way. No. <laughs> she, she bought a, a 600-year-old uh, coaching inn and wanted to rebrand it to fit to or update it and make it fit within a new collection of hotels. And right. She said that one of the challenges that, that she faced was balancing public opinion against her vision of what she wanted to achieve with the site. And something that she said, which really resonated with me, was that it was the residents that owned the hotel. It's not me. This is this is their product. This is here for them. I must listen to them and gain their support in order for me to to continue with, with the work that I want to do Mm. so when you're then looking at how um, I suppose in order to be successful you must first establish your business case 
you know, what what is it that you want to achieve? What is your vision? Who, what markets are you targeting? I know we've got um, Sarah and Chris here who are both from, I suppose, the, the private membership world, which is certainly very different from, to some degree, uh, a hotel or, or a standalone restaurant, a coaching inn. But when it comes to actually adapting that business in the future and, and, and how that business needs to evolve, two topics immediately spring to mind, one of which is ESG and one of which is technology. And I think yep. that eventually these are two topics that um, at, at some point down the line is going to have to be activated. I think government decisions and and the law will effectively mean that businesses will have no choice but to adapt and evolve in certain operational ESG areas and components. And on the technology piece, fast forward to your future guest of 50 years time and a generation which is perhaps more tech savvy and have grown up to grown up accustomed to this way of living at some point again a business might need to evolve to remain relevant and and meet the needs of the modern guest so going back to that business case I think you need to really understand and establish early on who you are what you want to achieve because there are some brands which market themselves as providing a digital detox they've carved their space in the market they've seen an opportunity but Others might be very different. Yeah, I suppose that the, the the key point there is is that every business is going to be different, right? But I mean, ultimately, you have to future proof whilst also protecting the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually think that legacy is more about the future than it is about the past and what has been. So, if- oh, that's going on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, I do, I don't know if if a brand or, or an owner really sets out with the intent to create a legacy, but they're certainly here to make sure that that, that that brand is very much here to stay for future generations, which touches on the infrastructure, making sure that everything is up to standards, but also bringing in the people side of it, making sure that you're training the right people, retaining them because they are effectively your future leader of the business and will embody that vision and legacy and continue it in the future. So lots to talk about there. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, any, anything to anything catch your fire there? Well, I, I think for me, I, I, I love this sort of discussion because it highlights the diversity of our industry. And for me, uh, the legacy is is very current um, because if I'm going to keep the, a certain demographic interested here, uh, enjoying the place, then I can't change much. If I want to encourage the lifeblood for the future to come in, then I've got to change something. And I yeah. have to do it in a very subtle and careful way. So as I say, I'm focused on customer satisfaction rather than the bottom line. Uh, we are, after all, a not-for-profit organization in this part of hospitality. Yeah, I, I, I suppose there what you're talking about is kind of managing the the tradition versus the future, if you like. So those who are in your business now are more focused on, well, this is kind of 
the way we've always had it and this is what we like so you can't you've got to kind of keep them happy because they're your lifeblood right now but equally you've got to start preparing for those people who are in front and coming in as the next wave absolutely and and it covers every aspect of the operation here uh, even the menu you know I, I have to keep classic club dishes on the menu if i took liver and bacon or prawn cocktail off the menu i'd be hanging from the yardarm um, <laughs> but i have to uh, acknowledge a, a vegan group a a group that 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 wants light meals in the evening and, and then it spreads on to the dress code and i have a demographic that insists that we keep a very formal dress code yet the younger generation will not want to wear jacket and tie every night and so those balancing acts uh, within the legacy here are hugely important and probably more important than squeezing pennies out of people and, and making more profit. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, any, anything light your fire within there? Um, I think something that Eloise said that owners or when you, when you have your, your building, your hotel, whatever that looks like, don't necessarily set out to create that legacy. They set out to create something that has been in their head for a long time and, and then they tried they first put it on paper, then they they find the building and then they and then they work from there. But I think it's interesting that I always think that legacy is a culmination of so many factors. And you can have a legacy and be quite early on in, in your career, let's say, you know, you, you hear a lot of people who they, they talk about legacies, but they're, they're still quite young. So you, you think of the word legacy and some people think of, oh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, but but it, it isn't like that. And so I think anybody who's starting out needs to understand a little bit about what it is that not just their own personal legacy, I think, what is the legacy of that property? What is the legacy of that what do they want to leave behind? What do they want to be known for? Because I think every decision that you then make can contribute to that. I've been in openings of properties where every decision we've made, you know, two years down the line, it's either ingrained and it was a great decision or it's come back to, to bite you. Um, and you've had to quickly yeah. shuffle backwards a little bit because at the time it seemed like a great idea. But when in reality, when you're open and you're practicing, it's it was a terrible idea. Yeah. But I think, yeah, legacy is, is what... It's, it, it's created, but it's also an inclusive creation because everybody has a part of it and it can chop and change um, at, at any time. So, yeah, I, I thought it was quite interesting to talk about people don't set out to create legacies, but I'm just wondering what then makes that legacy? Who then decides it's a legacy? Yeah, I, I suppose there's a, there has to be something that's sparked within in order to want to create a legacy and and maybe legacy is the wrong word but you actually you know it comes back to that that mentality of just wanting to create something that you leave behind that people take certainly in hospitality's perspective take joy from yes. and uh, they give up their time to to come and and, and spend some time in in your places but then I, I suppose from a purely human perspective then actually what what you're potentially talking about as well is that if somebody can understand what their own personal legacy is and then find a property or a company who are kind of married and that comes down to values ultimately then you know you could have a very long and interesting career ahead of you 
Definitely, I think I think that's the same for for any industry. You can you can go into any industry, and it doesn't you know there's, you have a choice of companies, and their their values, their behaviour, their their way of working maybe doesn't fit with what you're looking for. But I think if you can find that match, and I think now more than ever, the re, you know recruitment in any industry is, is a challenge, especially in in our industry. And it's not about finding somebody that can do the job; it's finding somebody that can do the job and add value to whatever you're trying to do at that time and to come in and yes be trained and shaped and molded and developed but initially from day one to add their own personality to add their own character and to to build on that that legacy we were with the hospitality industry we are front facing in front of the guests every day making memories creating something special and i think the team that you have have to all come together to to shape that and so so people definitely not only make that difference, but I think it's really important that as a company, you understand, everybody understands what that looks like. They understand the legacy that they all want to be part of and they all want to, to join in. And also, as, as Chris was saying, to know when to change because we have to change. We've, we've had to change a lot over the past two years and, and there's only more change coming with, with lots of different challenges coming our way. And it's knowing when to change and what to change and then how to make that change all impacts every aspect of the business, but it will definitely impact the thoughts of people moving forward. So it will it will impact in some way the, the legacy that you leave behind. And I think everyone has to think about how do they want to be known? How do they want to be seen in the industry? Are they the industry champions? Are they the industry leaders? Are they, you know, what what, what does that look like? Absolutely. Uh, I love the the line that you said there, that, that it's about building on that legacy. It's uh, So whoever comes into your property at whatever time, it's it's about we have a baseline and let's build from mm-hmm. that um, forward in whatever way that looks like. And I suppose that's down to leadership and everybody there to define what that building of the legacy looks like going forward. Yeah, and, and all being on the same page, I think it's really important that we all, you know, we, we have a management team that we all we all work in very different ways. We're all very different people, but we all have the same goal and the same vision at the end of the day. Um, and to all come together and to, to support each other and to help each other in in all aspects of the, the business to create that one vision that, that we all have. We just all have different ways of getting there. Yeah, totally. Um, so how do we ensure that the legacy is protected for those who come after you? So in your case, Chris, you know, you're I don't know how long you'll be there, but somebody will take that over from you at some point in the future. How do you ensure that you are leaving it in a, a better place than you found it? Well, again, I think it's fundamentally different from a proprietorial organization because although I am the chief executive uh, and the club secretary uh, with responsibility to manage the estate, the people and the business, there is a board of directors and the board of directors are pretty fluid. They, they are members who are elected um, by their fellow members and they could be in power for as little time as a year. So although I am here in order to make to protect the legacy, I do have to have strike quite strong diplomatic skills, um, which that's quite handy. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. My last job was as an attaché in Paris, so it set me up for this. Uh, and, and it can be quite a challenge because different chairmen, different directors come in with fundamentally different ideas on what they think the club should look like. And yeah. so I have to exert a reasonable amount of <clears throat> reason and, and strength in my reasoning 
to keep them on a legacy-bound route. So it, it is difficult, but we've got a great history to, to fall back on, and, and I can use that in my reasoning. Yeah, that kind of underpins everything. It does. Um, that, yeah. yeah, that you move forward with. Eloise, what's your, your thoughts on uh, how we ensure that we can protect the legacy for those who come next? If I were to speak anecdotally and okay first and foremost I would argue that um, it is is absolutely about the people and and to back up what Sarah was saying earlier these these your staff your employees they're not necessarily protecting that legacy they are the living breathing embodiment of that legacy um, and I think I mentioned earlier that you know your your, your future leader might already be within the ranks of your own own staff. But I can imagine trying to balance different viewpoints from Chris's point of view being a very difficult and challenging one. So so kudos to you, Chris. But to to speak of my experience, something that I thought was was quite nifty going back to when I used to work in a hotel. I used to work at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, which is along the seafront. Right. Yeah, which yeah. is a very iconic hotel. Um, has masses of history um, behind it. I think it was the first hotel outside of London who that implemented working elevators. Um, it's probably most famously known for when Margaret Thatcher um, held her conference, the Tory conference next door, and the hotel was bombed. Um, yeah. ABBA, I believe... I don't know why I laughed then, sorry. No. <laughs> ABBA stayed at, at the hotel when they won the Eurovision Song Contest, and... I'm not sure whose idea it was to implement this, but this was in 2018. Okay, so pre-pandemic, QR codes were installed throughout the hotel. They weren't in your face. They were very subtle. And those hotel guests that were interested in learning more um, so that you don't necessarily have to remember all that factual information, the legacy of the hotel, you could direct your guest over to the QR code and they would be able to pull up on their phone the entire historical timeline of everything that had happened in that hotel and even guide the guest around to specific points within within the hotel. For example, when the front of the hotel was bombed and it it blew up the, the front of it, one of the green marble pillars in the lobby was was damaged. So they've had to reconstruct this pillar like for like. And if you walk up to the pillar and you, and you knock on it, you can tell which one's fake and which one's real. And it was, right. it was like a little treasure map, if you like, for the guests to go out and explore and feel fully immersed in what had come before, but also what is physically in front of them. So, again, it's just a, an example of a way that you can ensure that the legacy of a hotel or, or other building is there for um, for future generations. I quite like the uh, embracing the tech element there as well in terms of using technology to help maintain the uh, the historical legacy of the of the property and everything that's happened before. I mean, now that ABBA are doing their holographic tour, I mean, who knows what's what's going to come our way. But but yeah, it was just an example of, of a way that technology is being used that's very subtly balancing the old with the new. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, 
very conscious of time. Does anybody have any anything to add that they feel incredibly passionate about? I think I'd, I'd just like to uh, illustrate um, a transition in, in legacy. I ran a club in London called the Naval and Military Club. Uh, it's in St. James's Square. But mm. It's commonly known as the In-N-Out. And it was called the In-N-Out because originally it was on Piccadilly. And it had two huge entry portals, one with in on it and one out. And the horse and carriages would have to obey by that. When we moved into a Queen Anne building in St. James's Square, where the entrance was just a doorway with a couple of pillars, it was a no-brainer to put in exactly the same font, in and out, on either side of that, to identify uh, the club as the in and out. And uh, it was very important, hugely important. And I think that sort of thing underpins the importance of legacy. Yeah, and it has a little moment, doesn't it, where people who, who understand it's history the people who already are aware of it when you do something like that that it wouldn't help i would imagine but bring a little smile to their face absolutely yeah yeah sarah anything to add before i let you all go no not too much i just think i, I agree with what what you were talking about in terms of of uh, maintaining and, and passing on that legacy to the next not necessarily generation to the, to the next person that takes over your role or or a part of your role. And a big focus here for, for me is we have a lot of history, we have a lot of heritage and we have a lot of stories. Working with Raymond, there's a lot of stories. And I've, yeah. I've worked quite hard to try and record those stories and capture those stories because they relate to some very specific people. And once we no longer have those people, we no longer have the stories. And so we work to capture the stories and then we work really hard with the team to help them to tell those stories because once once they're they're captured, they then need to be told and and, and to be heard and to be told in, in in people's own way. And so their big focus here is to 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 keep those to keep those stories, to record those stories, to help the team to to tell those stories, um, and then also to, to train the team behind me about what what is important and, and what needs to be to be kept and what needs to be told to the next people coming in. I like that. I like that a lot because as somebody who loves a story, I, um, I'm doing, funnily enough, exactly the same thing with my mother and father at the moment. That's not hospitality led, <laughs> but um, it dawned on me uh, at one point that there was there's an awful lot of stories that, you know, you, you say in passing over the years that you kind of, you know, you laugh and giggle about at the time, but then they just drift to the back of your head and you forget yeah. them until the end of time. And we're, we're I'm actually now working with my mom and dad to, kind of put these into a book uh, purely for our eyes only but um i do, it, i feel that you know by pretty much exactly the same thing that you're doing there is is that there's so many stories would have happened in the time that uh, that raymond's been there that um yeah i if if that ever gets published <laughs> i'll be on the list <laughs> fantastic great well, I thank you very much for, for all your, your input today. I think it's a subject matter which has still got probably a lot to, to cover off, but um, uh, your, your opinion is incredibly valuable and I, uh, every angle that we've come at this today I think is massively important. So all that remains for me to say is thank you so much and I wish you a good day ahead. Thanks, Thanks very so much. much. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Look forward to meeting you all one day. Thanks. Fantastic. Thanks, Phil. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Bye. I'm in.
Today's episode of I'm In was brought to you by Cater.com and the Savoy Educational Trust Uncovered Legacy with Eloise Hansen, AIH, Sarah Powell, MIH, Christopher Hogan, FIH and hosted by me, Phil Street, FIH. As always, a huge shout out to the IOH's very own Sonia Criswell, AIH for hard work and branding and Leon Williams, FIH for the music. To say I'm in and feature on a future episode, contact fail.street at instituteofhospitality.org and to find out more about the Institute of Hospitality or to join our hospitality family, please click the links in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening and join us next time where we'll be discussing reputation. I always-